Welcome to the NZ Sales and Marketing Insider, the podcast where we pull back the curtain and speak to the brains behind sales and marketing activity that has delivered real results. Get inspired and get actionable ideas by hearing what they did and how they did it. Brought to you by me, Ben Rose, along with Gorilla Technology. Welcome to another episode of the NZ Sales and Marketing Insider, supported by product partner 40 Thieves Nut Butters. I'm your host, Ben Rose, and today we're speaking to Rob Cook, a man with a rare combination of both marketing and sales expertise, currently heading up New Zealand for cloud-based customer engagement platform, Braze. He's also the first guest we've ever had on the show who's represented his country at Street Lugeing. Rob's career to date saw him start off in the UK in a sales role, later moving into client service and strategy roles and marketing and ad agencies, which brought him to New Zealand with local icon TBWA. Over the years, he's worked with a whole host of brands, including Nissan, Wrangler, Evian, Firestone and Deutsche Bank, to name just a few. Rob's next step was to move into executive sales and marketing leadership roles at organisations including Yellow, Localist, Marketo, BNZ, Online Republic and then TheMarket.com, where he served as Chief Marketing Officer. And now he's country head for US-based software platform Braze. So without any more waffle from me, welcome to the show, Rob. Hello, Ben. Thank you for having me. So, Rob, are you a salesman or a marketer or a bit of both? I think the two things are so aligned. Um, From our background, we both ended up in advertising for our sins at some point in time, where you're dealing with a marketing audience, Mm -hmm. but you are an influencer to try and get the, someone to to believe your point of view and effectively buy your your creative time, so we start from that point of view. Um, look, I'm not in a position of selling um, selling a pen to the man on the street. I'm in currently with Brace. My role is to explain a tool set and a capability that's going to help the marketing community and the marketing resources to be more uh, enabled to do whatever its uh, KPI journey is. So the sales part of it is to explain a capability. Mm-hmm. The marketing point of it is to sell a dream, I suppose, uh, sell a um, sell an inspiration. So, so what's your, at Braze, what's your structure when it comes to sales and marketing? Are they in the same team? Do they sit separately? Are they the same people? They're, they're very much in separate teams because it's a very specialist way of, of approaching the world. So. Sales is uh, a leader within ourselves as a SaaS organization. Mm. We we are engaging with clients who we believe have pain points or we have opportunities that we can assist them with. Mm -hmm. The marketing function is much more traditional in the view of um, account-based marketing, in terms of target-based marketing, and to, to reach out to people who we think are the audience that we want to reach. The, the, the marketing in a B2B sense is a, is a much different skill set to a B2C sense. So we separate those out, those, those things very, very much so. Um, our, beta, our, our marketing team has a global and local influence. Mm-hmm. Um, we tap into those teams to, to really as lead generation. When it comes to actually marketing in a more traditional sense, awareness, uh, consideration, mm. that really comes down to the way that we're talking to each other in the street, the way that I might be reaching out to a community of marketers or yeah. working with the marketing association or going to iMedia in a few months' time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's really where I suppose it's a hybrid of the two roles, but it's really acting on that sense of awareness. So, so you've worked, you know, you've worked in, in, in both functions really over the, over the, the years. Yep. 
Have you found the skill sets for both um, to be mutually exclusive, or you know, is, is there a certain kind of skill set that one needs to be successful in those? Yeah, there are particular skill sets in both, I believe, and it should never be underestimated how how incredibly uh, scientific the art of sales is, mm -hmm. if you want to do it right, and that means that you are understanding and, and, and enabling a huge amount of empathy for the client issue from a very early stage. You're able to soak up, uh, build a relationship so you can soak up their point of view and they can trust you with the truth of what it is actually occurring underneath the hood in their organization so that you can decide whether the, uh, the opportunity is one that's going to be of mutual value. So how does, that, how does that look? Because the perception often from people outside sales is that sales is a lot about long lunches and playing golf and, you know, schmoozing people. So how, how does the science work? How do, how do you go from the idea of approaching a client to a successful sale? Well, from, from my point of view, it's really about having a massive amount of empathy for the actual client you're trying to undertake. And within that, being incredibly authentic to present yourself in the, in the way that is relevant to the client. So that sense of um, authenticity and being very deliberate means that you should, you should be respectful to the client and you know, live the brand at one level. First of all, I would, I would I'd never talk to a client without having a full understanding of what the consumer feels and touches and yep. experiences. Yep. Um, that gives you uh, some form of understanding of where the current capabilities are to reach people. And there'll be pockets within that. I mean, I'm talking very much from our point of view of what Braze does. Yeah, yeah. But um, understanding the client from every single piece of research you can possibly get your hands on, um, whether it's partners or, or whether it's looking at uh, annual reports or, or whatever advocacy community you have around you, to fully get a rounded understanding of the mm. client, the relationships, the pain points they've got, so that you can approach with respect to say, yeah, Ben, I believe this is the situation you're facing. I'm putting my best uh, assumptions on the fact that the things that you worry about are X, Y, and Z, and therefore the areas that we can add value are in Y and Z. And, you know, I know some mate around the corner who can probably help with the X bit, but it's not us. So you, so you, can so you build in credibility in the conversation by showing that you understand their problems rather than just turning up with a list of products and saying... Here's what I've got. What would you like? Of, yeah, of course. I mean, that, I, um, because we're all human and we want to be treated like humans. And the point is that no matter what you're selling, whether it's selling a house or selling a car or selling a, a piece of SaaS software, um, you're buying from a person. Mm -hmm. You're not buying a product. Mm -hmm. And that's because you want to establish the fact that this person is not going to rip you off. They're not going to missell you, upsell you, undersell you. They're not just on a one-way negotiation here of get everything I can, get a check yeah. and run away. Yeah. So you trust people. You just build up that sense of trust. And being respectful of the organization is one part of establishing that trust. Mm -hmm. And it's a, it's a, I think it's a critical part of establishing that trust. So, look, we've all come across guys who, you know, time sales, salesmen in Spanish villas or whatever yeah, in our yeah, lives, yeah. right? Yeah. And they are the archetypal guy that I'd never want to deal with. Yeah, yeah. Um, the, there's obviously a completely one-sided view here, and I'm going to tell you anything I possibly can to get you in a situation that you're going to say yes, yeah, yeah. and I don't care on the outcomes. Mm. And I think very much we here in New Zealand are in a advocacy community. And I say that because 
we're all one degree of separation from each other, even if it's half a degree of separation in one levels. So you, no matter what role you play in an organization, you're living on your own personal brand. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And sales matters in that way. Mm -hmm. I know guys in the, in the US, in the UK, in Germany, for whom I can flog you something and we're never going to ever meet again. Yeah. So what do yeah. I care? Yeah. Yeah. Whereas I, I live in, and, and work in and grow my kids up in this community in New Zealand. Yeah. My personal brand matters to do the right thing by you, whoever I'm talking to. Mm -hmm. So that it, it isn't a case of wham, bam, put you in a situation and say everything you want to hear. Yeah. Yeah. I'd much prefer to build a, a partnership so that when this comes to a point of, uh, of, of mutual acceptance that mm -hmm. we've got of something of value to you, that you become the greatest salesperson for my product when I'm not in the room. You become the advocate that drives every new lead for me because you're going, talk to that guy, Rob, solved problem A, B, C, solved it in a way that made sense to us. Mm. And subsequently, you know, you guys, you should also go and talk to those guys. I, I like what you said as well about when, when there are parts of their issues that you can't solve, being honest about that and suggesting who they might talk to. That, well, that is, I think, part of that is being human. Maybe, that, maybe part of that is being Kiwi. But it, certainly part of that is this sense of a partnership because whoever we are dealing with in this very small professional community in New Zealand, you're going to come across them again and again and again. Yeah. yeah. So if you're the guy that um, missold, mm. undersold, oversold, whatever it happens to be, mm. I'm going to give you a bit of a side eye next time. Yeah. And so why do that to yourself? More importantly, why do that to the organisation? It's a very disrespectful thing to do. So... You worked in the UK um, before coming to New Zealand. What were some of those cultural differences that you found coming here in terms of, you know, in terms of sales, in terms of selling ideas into people, the ways that the Brits uh, take things differently to, to Kiwis? My last role in the UK before I came here was actually in the newspapers industry, where it's a pretty brutal environment and mm -hmm. pretty brutal language, yep, yep. a pretty brutal way of treating humans. Right, right. And so maybe that's an unreal comparison to what happens in New Zealand, but that's just a, a pretty awful meat grinder in terms of where people in the newspaper industry, ex-Fleet Street guys, the way they talk to each other, the way we deal with each other, the way they deal with suppliers. Um, I had to unlearn some pretty horrible behaviours. And look, when I first arrived in New Zealand, I wasn't Kiwi trained. Yeah. And I, and I admit, admit that now. It's been a long time. It's been mm. nearly 20 years. Mm. And I have grown and matured over that period of time. In London, uh, you would meet people and never meet them ever again, yeah, whether it's yeah. in the streets or whether yeah. the rest of it and road rage or whatever, right? Yeah, yeah. People are, are quite free with their language and their behaviours to go, just get out of my way, you're mm. in my way, whatever. And I don't think New Zealand operates that way. And I think that's quite right not to operate that way. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So to come back... To get back to the pointy part of your question is, what are the differences? I think people act and behave in a way that in New Zealand you are selling to your friend's wife. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Because you probably are. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whereas in, in, in the UK you are particularly selling to a stranger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that dramatically changes how you act for the better. I think it dramatically changes the way that you will not stitch someone up. Mm. And what about the other way? Because something I've found in sales in New Zealand is Kiwis don't like to say no, doesn't feel nice to say no. So they, they, can, they can ghost a salesperson or just lead them on a little bit because they don't want to disappoint them. Do you, have you found that? 
Yeah, I think there's a I think there's a level of that, and I think come come back to the art of art of sales or the science of sales. And I'm not saying I'm an expert in any way. In you this are. You're on this podcast, so you must. Be. <laughs> I, so I'm the expert. <laughs> good, good. So I'm the expert. So everything I say, but the. Um, Look, uh, establishing very early on within any kind of uh, engagement, effectively the rules of engagement. Mm-hmm. What is what is the what is the deal cycle going to look like? What are the parameters of the decision criteria you're going to have to make? Mm-hmm. Understanding who within this um, deal cycle, who's the influencer, who's the challenger, who's the economic buyer, who who's the fox that's going to say no somewhere in this. Look, if you understand that ecosystem, you should also, I believe making sure you have at least three points of contact within the organization. Okay. So that um, whether that means I'm dealing with the one person that I deal with, that's fine. Mm-hmm. But I'll also get my colleague, my boss, mm-hmm. whatever to go to whatever context they have, maybe yeah. Yeah. at the exec level or maybe at the technical level or maybe a lot of it happens in, in my world at the partner level. Mm-hmm. That the client will be seeking multiple points of influence or multiple points of, points of view. Yeah. And so... A no can be in, can be ratified through other channels as well. Mm-hmm. So whilst one person who's very polite and saying, uh, I'd rather not return Ben's call because, mm-hmm. there are other routes to find out what actually is occurring within this situation that gives you a bit, bit more of a, an angle. Um, and also allows people a, a way out. Because, look, if someone isn't, if it's, not, if it's not right, often I've found it's not right now. Yes, yes, yeah. And therefore, that once again, it comes back to this point of relationship that um, yeah, you you may be fit 85% of the criteria and it's amazing. And it may be the fact that we should carry on this conversation because you can solve so many of our problems and make us more successful. Mm-hmm. But um, we just don't have the headspace, the resource space, the bandwidth, whatever, to deal with this at this stage of time. Great. Well, let's work with you and continue the conversation to find the truth of when that might be, when more that compelling event likely to occur or can we work together to make one yes yeah yeah. and so therefore the person finds the person you're selling to if you if you are if they give you permission i'll put that mm. to build a partnership mm-hmm. and effectively a, a friendship in inverted commas then they feel less exposed by that i must say no yeah they yeah. feel like there's this isn't kind of a, a line in the sand and oh my god it's because they can tell you with some honesty look Now's not the right time, but let's work towards when the right time is. Mm-hmm. When when you've um, been in roles where you're um, selling ideas and thoughts and concepts, so I met you when you were a, um, head of planning at TBWA, for example, how does um, selling the selling of ideas differ from the selling of um, products and services, or, or does it not at all? I think it does. Um, it does differ. And look, from our world, Ben, we were probably selling time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If you really nut it down, yes, we were selling a resource, a time-based resource that was very expensive within the ecosystem of the ad agency, which is this fourth-floor creatives or however you might classify it. And um, when we had to go in our Pegasus to put in our time coding or whatever it happened to be, we had to show profitability. Yeah, yeah. So as far as we were concerned, we needed the engine that gave us an output, mm-hmm. which is you put the brief in some brilliant guys come up with some ideas mm-hmm. that's expressed back to the client. And, we, and our pressure was to make sure that we didn't go to two or three cycles of that before we got a signature and could stop that creative process. 
And so that pressure on us was really about how do I create the efficiency of the sale to make sure I'm not destroying my margin. But the pro and the product you're selling though is a hugely subjective um, conversation oh. around: is this a good product you've given me, or or a bad one, or that, a mediocre one? I think that well, that's the the issue of marketing, right? The issue of marketing is the subjective view. I mean, all all of us and all of us on this podcast have been told that my wife doesn't like it. Right? Mm, mm, mm. Again, is your wife the target audience? And all those arguments we've all, all said, but we all face the massive subjectivity either internally or externally. Yeah, going look, we. The brief might be great, the product might be great, the idea might be brilliant, but someone in the organization just has a whisper going, I just don't get it, don't like it, surely we could. So that subject is incredibly hard. And this is where marketers try to protect themselves with meeting the expectations early on, which is, what are we doing? What's the brief? What yep. are the parameters? Yep. Have we all agreed on this, first of all? And if we have all agreed on that and you've really effectively covered your ass completely, yeah, yeah. at some point of subjectivity, mm. you can say, you know what, back off. I've got this one. We've and met all of those things we said we were important. Yeah. Yeah. But it, the, to, to segue, mm. if I may. You may. If I may. Look, I did, um, did a talk very recently about this point of, of trust with marketers because that subjectivity comes down to trust. It comes down to, look, if it's between your point of view and my point of view, maybe I should trust the expert. Yeah, yeah. And the issue that marketing as a discipline has got these days is that that level of trust is at the lowest level, at the exact level that it's ever been. The report that I was pointing to is a report by a Boston-based consultancy called uh, the Boathouse Group. Mm -hmm. And in 2021, they did this research survey of... Um, 150 Fortune 3000 CEOs and said, um, your marketing head, CMO, whatever you want to call them, how much do you trust him? What role does it play on the exec? And I say him just to be a generic, I don't mean that, I'll say them. Um, the issue was that the tenure of an exec level head of marketing is at its lowest level it's been in a decade. Uh, from a Fortune 3000, the average tenure of a CMO is just shy of 25 months. So this massive turnover, mm -hmm. massive turnover. And they were kind of studying, the boathouse was asked to study this from the point of view of the investor community going, there's sense of instability within the execs, yeah, and especially yeah. with listed businesses, where's this instability coming from? Because as everyone, as every marketer moves or any exec movement, you lose IP, you lose momentum, Absolutely. you lose et cetera. Right? So they, they, the, the study was, was actually pretty, pretty awful in what it said is that the CEOs who they interviewed said that the majority of CMOs have the power to influence the rest of the exec, 86%. Okay. Great. They said that um, only 58% of them, though, believed they, they believed only 58% of them actually understood the business. Wow, 58%. And that gets a bit even worse, being said, um, subsequently, when I think about who I've got confidence in on my exec, the marketing head, I've only got 34% of the CEOs so they have actually got any confidence wow. in the person driving the marketing. And 21% um, of them said, my CMO has got difficulty measuring the business results and um, they're failing because they've got the wrong skill set for the marketing environment. Now, the CEO saying the marketer 
has an ability to influence, mm, mm. but has no has, has a little understanding of the actual business environment that mm. I face, and therefore is not able to measure what's important to the business and can't present it back to me. So the only thirty percent of them said they trust their CMO. So no wonder there's this massive turnover yeah, because yeah. if your boss hasn't got you back, and he's, you know, three seven seventy percent of the time is saying, "I'm not sure about you," mm, mm. then it's a very uncomfortable place to be, and yeah. you you subjectivity drives into that massively. Mm. So you find yourself double guessed, you find yourself under undercooked, under undercut at every turn because. Seventy percent of the cases, the CEO is going. I'm not sure you've got strings around this. So what you're presenting back to me, maybe I'll, I'll second guess it. So that's, I think that's a worrying consideration. If that is a truth, and that was from whatever 2011, um, the question of what we can do about that mm. as a marketing community, mm, and we mm-hmm. bounced off from sales, is look. I think most marketers are still coming from a very traditional marketing point of view whether well, that's a Unilever point of view or, or a, uh, you know, a consumer goods point of view or, or whatever it happens to be, there was a very particular way of doing marketing for many, many years. And, mm-hmm. we, and we would traditionally grab an agency and we would make them give us decks and make us look good and all. Yeah, kind of business, yeah. right? I think the skill set of marketing has changed dramatically because the consumer's changed. Right. It's a much more, we talked about the fragmented, the, the fragmented media landscape. We've talked about the fact that the consumer is much more cynical and savvy than they've ever been before. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So what are the channels of influence that we should be using to drive whatever are those marketing KPIs? And marketing is the exposure towards the sales moment, right? So we're driving you towards the counter in some way is the marketing's role. So we need to establish that sense of belief and trust and there's a there, whatever emotional or physical pain points you've got, we've got a solution that's going to help you. But we need to make sure it happens in a, in a way that resonates to the channels of greatest influence. So, so, how, so how do marketers practically do that? So you know, a new marketer going into a business, how do they get that understanding and, and build those relationships and that trust so that they could really make a difference to the business? I think, I think it comes down to truly, truly understanding what everyone else is doing Mm-hmm. What everyone else's roles are doing. Mm-hmm. I mean, marketing has been accused in the past of being quite a siloed, siloed skill, and maybe that's what this report says. Mm-hmm. The fact that I'm, I'm very good at what I do, and I'm very good at having lunches and doing golf or whatever you talked mm-hmm. about, which I, I, I can't imagine does happen anymore. But <laughs> um, what the CEOs are crying out for in this instance is for the marketer uh, to be much more cognizant to the myriad of other issues faced by the exec and the true issue behind the issue mm-hmm. which is look we might be we might be trying to drive a new brand campaign yeah. but the truth of that the output of that if we're very successful is maybe an increase in investor confidence mm-hmm. and therefore the audience you're aiming for isn't actually that consumer sitting in front of the TV yeah. Yeah. it's the guy at Jarden who's mm-hmm. kind of going do I buy or do I sell yeah yeah because there's a whole lot of stakeholders who want to want to make sure we influence that person. Mm. If the marketer truly understands what are the metrics and drivers behind this business, not the surface, not the surface superficial ones, but what's what's really the nuts and bolts of how this business operates, then trust flows, because you have the you have the power to influence, and you actually understand the metrics which is going to drive this business forward. And 
therefore that will be a virtual circle of saying, well, I trust you more, I'll let mm. you more deeper into the business. My colleagues on the exec will trust me more to be of value to them as well as me. So a lot of the principles are, are the same when it comes to you know, influencing sales, client service. It's about understanding you know, the challenges faced by whoever it is that you're talking to so that you can help them address them and make sure you're fixing the right problems for them. Yeah, and, and actually the other side of that is actually becoming a, a, a trusted partner or, or trust builds, but being a partner that they can help an organisation understand that the brief that they're presenting or the problem they're presenting, there may be something else underlying this as well. Yeah. So how do we work together to help unpick what is going on here that's going to drive your success as an organisation? Um, and, and what are the resources and tools that we can put in place that are going to make you more successful? So, so talking about the way that different companies work together, you've worked inside um, businesses, you've worked in suppliers for businesses before. So what are your views on what sort of functions and parts of a business should be outsourced versus in-house? Do you have any views, views around that when thinking specifically around sales and marketing? I think um, two different organisations can have completely the same market but completely different culture. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it's a very hard, I think it's a very hard question to say that should be outsourced or that should be insourced. Um, it really depends on, on the core culture of the organisation versus the core skills of the organisation. We might be an engineering culture mm-hmm. or it might be a sales culture. You often look at um, a, a power company, for say. Mm-hmm. Like a power company on the surface is a consumer brand. Mm-hmm. But if you look at the exact build-up, there's a hell of a lot of engineers on there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what they think are the places that we should have internal versus external resources is probably very different from uh, someone who's flogging cars. Mm-hmm. The other factor, I think, in, and it's a very live factor for all of us at the moment, is the talent shortage of brilliant people. Yeah, yeah. And therefore, we might make sense to bring someone internally because they can assist with our culture mm-hmm. they can build from within they give us capability they give us a competitive advantage but obviously there's an opex cost to that yeah but then there's also is uh, an opportunity cost of going are they around yeah 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 absolutely the the other factor of internal external is your life cycle you might be a startup going okay at this moment i've got this as my problem set, my burn down that I've got to get out the door within 18 months. Yeah, yeah. Therefore, my, um, I need more strategy. Yeah, yeah. I need more thinking. I need more stuff. I need a hell of a lot of doers, obviously, to a more mature business where actually I'm in a more of a BAU framework. Mm. And yes, I need, to, I need to be constantly thinking and challenging myself in terms of strategy, but I'm not kind of worrying, what the hell am I going to do tomorrow? Because you've got yeah. an engine that's already running. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, the, so your skill mix is what I'm in eloquently saying, your skill mix changes over time. Yeah, okay. So it might make sense of saying, well, look, let's inbound that, let's, sorry, let's, let's outsource that skill base for those next six months where we need that thing. Yeah. Because yeah. bringing that headcount on doesn't make sense. Mm. If you look back over, the, over your career, you've worked on a lot of businesses across a lot of brands. Are there any in particular that you look back on really fondly and think, that was pretty cool, that was a real achievement? One of the last roles I did before leaving the UK was uh, I launched the Daily Mail. Wow, did you? I did. Awesome. Um, Associated Newspapers, or a- A&M, Associated News Media, uh, they were the female, which was F-E-M-A-L, which was the kind of Thursday gossip column. They were the last of the High Street, the last of the Fleet Street newspapers to go online. Right. Um, 
after the current bun, the sun. <laughs> Good. Yeah, I remember the current bun. Then, um, so they wanted to get it right. And there was a huge backlash by Paul Dacre, the editor of the print, who was oh, saying, I don't really want a, a um, digital version of myself that's going to scoop me overnight so no one buys a newspaper in the morning. It ain't going to happen under my watch. So a large part of that role, coming back to sales and marketing, a large yeah. part of that role was the influence of the old stalwarts wow. that we ain't going to destroy the battleship and we can actually improve it. So actually, one part of it was how do we reach the consumer and, and with a value proposition that makes sense? Yeah, yeah. The more important part of the role was how do I build a value proposition for this arm of an existing business and make sure that the stakeholders internally mm. um, I don't think we're doing crazy things. And it was amazing times. We, we, I had a very inspirational boss I learned a lot from, even though he was a little bit mad, but he was he's a very nice guy in places. Um, but he's taught me a huge amount. I've worked for great bosses, I've worked for awful bosses, and I've probably learned the most from terrible bosses. Yep. 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 I'm not saying he's a terrible boss. If his lawyers are listening, I'm not saying that <laughs> at all. But um yeah, I learned a huge amount about um about burn down, about granulating an issue for a team to really get them motivated to do things. We had a short period of time to do things. I learned a huge amount about in about what is actually driving the reality about something. Mm. That um what what's the real problem we got here that People aren't saying yes. I learned about the fact that you can actually have an office with three secretaries. Well, <laughs> Dacre had an anti-office and an anti-office and anti-office. He? He it was like going to meet the general. Good. He had this beautiful, beautiful office in Kensington in London, which was just near Harrods, and it was probably twice the size of my house. So, uh, so a bit of a vested interest in not changing the industry too much. Bit of vested. But the, so the value proposition developed was saying, look, we're gonna, we won't scoop you, fine enough. We will, we will liaise with you, but we'll also we'll give you more real estate. Your issue often is that you have to sub and edit out big meaty parts of your stories. We can give you the real estate because we have an unlimited amount of physical yeah, real estate yeah, yeah. that you can supplement and have two versions of every story into that. Cool. You can have the, here's the scoop, happens in the paper, to find out more, go to. And that alleviated his pressure, alleviated his concerns. So that was great. Bonkers. Incredible, but put in the first paywalls. We, we did a um, crossword, Sudoku, and a columnist, which were expensive content. So knowing that no one was going to get their credit card out of their wallet and do a minimum $5 payment, mm -hmm. uh, did a deal with British Telecom, and we did micropayments back on your home phone bill. Wow. That was pretty cool. Yeah. Then also did uh, put the first ad sensors in with Google way back then. I mean, this was in 2001, which was great, but very early days. We put that in, and... Um, Remember the day we put it in, and I think that was the shoe bomber came out. Oh, God. And we had, and Google was going, oh, airlines, holidays. Samsonite. We had Samsonite ads all over. Oh, God, did you? Oh, God. And I was like, hmm, we just need to adjust the, the algorithm. Blah, blah, blah. So, you know, probably you didn't expect to wake up in the morning, and obviously the world's moved on. But fun times. So that was that. Take on that one. That was great fun. Can I segue? Segue, please do. I went with uh, Avril, was our um, editor-in-chief of the right. paper. Avril and I went up to a meeting in North London. Um, I went with Mark. Avril was back in the office. I was looking out the window in, I can't remember where, we were in Maida Vale somewhere. Don't know why we were there. doesn't matter. But as I looked out the window before the meeting turned up, mm. I saw a cab turn up 
and out pops Jude Law. Really? So Jude Law goes into the apartment opposite us. Excellent. I'm going, oh, look, that's Jude Law. And the next thing I know, he's in across the street from me at my eyeline in whatever this apartment is. And I'm going, oh. And I suddenly look at the downstairs and there's a sign for sale. No. So I go on the phone to Avril and go, Avril. Oh, brilliant. I think Jude Law is looking at a property in <laughs> XX Street, whatever. And she's going, uh, uh, she's on the phone going, oh, that'll be apartment 12, probably. Before poor Jude Law had even walked out of the apartment, he was headline. Jude Law's gold taps. Oh, no. We had all the photos of the listings. And, oh, um, my God, amazing. They spun the story to be Jude Law's getting a bit above himself with and gold taps. you were taps. the mole. I was the mole. So I obviously, Jude, if you're listening, I mm -hmm. do apologise for that. Jude does listen to this podcast. I'm not surprised. Mm -hmm. Not surprised. With calibre like us, mm. Ben. Why wouldn't you? So that was cool. Great times. Bit bonkers. Amazing. Building yeah. something. And, uh, and building something from scratch. Yeah, great. Um, and then well, what I just did with the market uh, and my, my amazing colleagues there, we built something from scratch, which in a very short period of time has become the zeitgeist within New Zealand. I mean... Are you a chief marketing officer there? I was chief marketing officer. So I, I was, I think I was employee number 14 or something. It started out with um, Eustace, the CEO, and, and Sarah and the tech team, Sarah being the GM trade. Um, they had gone in and really put together the MVP for the first mm. six months. Mm. Got to the, um, the the board, the MVP of the first capable bit of kit, and then I was brought in to name it, given an identity, um, uh, develop the value proposition, develop the partnerships. What a great opportunity. Build out a team. I was I was marketing for the first six months as we built out. Fantastic. Built up the MarTech. Yeah, yeah. Built up a performance team, a performance tech, a, a CLM team, CLM tech, built out SEO, built out design team, etc. Um, phenomenal and uh, a, a kind of a once in a lifetime. Mm. And the fact that it, it was incredibly successful as well and remains to be incredibly successful is a real kind of, yeah, that was pretty cool. Then obviously there is you and me doing the Bridgestone Retail Conference in that 2001. That was a highlight. That was absolutely that a was, That was quite a fun, actually. Um, Rob, last question um, that we ask all of our guests is um, if you could give our listeners a single piece of advice that they could wake up tomorrow morning in action, what would it be? I met a guy many years ago, absolute sales guy, and um, he, he got into home computing in the early 70s thinking, this is probably a good thing. Looks like it's going somewhere. Look, it's going somewhere. Obviously, made a few bob. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It was nine or something when he went up to his dad and said, Dad, can I borrow $10? I, need, I want to go to the movies with this girl. And his dad said, sit down. If you're old enough to borrow money, you're old enough to take a woman out. You're old enough to earn money to take a woman out. Okay. Dad didn't give him the cash. And he said, okay. He got up and said, okay, I'll go and get myself a job. And he went, sit down. Change your headspace. Never again say, I'm going to get myself a job. Change your headspace and say, I'm going to make a job. And it, even if you're in a role, if you have the headspace of I'm going to make the job that I want, there's enough lateral movement in any role to actually make sense of that. The fact that, yeah, I'm employed in this role, I've got a JD, the rest of it, but there are probably many, many more opportunities around the periphery of what you do. That the business will be happy for you to make the job into something that's relevant to them and relevant to you. Mm. And that emotional and, and headspace is really important because it gives you power. It gives you the power to be creative in your role. It gives you the power to be more relevant. It gives you the power of your own future career within that role or another role that you might go to. 
how it how it surfaced. Who is the ultimate entrepreneur? Is two ways. One is he um, he went and mowed them lawns for the people next door. Came back and said, "Hey, Dad, I've got ten dollars. Awesome. Well done, son. Um, what are you going to do tomorrow?" He says, "I don't need money tomorrow. Sit down." Son. <laughs> <laughs> Within two weeks, I was employing nine local children. Get off. And he started that way and has continued on. He um, the other thing he said is, uh, if they see a door, walk through it. No doors one way. He's constantly taken opportunities that have passed, gone, yeah, I'll step into that. I love that. That's a great thought. He was uh, at a conference once. He's a sales guy forever. He was at a conference once, chatting to the guy next to him. Well, what do you do? Um, he, um, the guy, he was, this would be mid-90s, uh, was working for MapQuest. We think mapping is going to be kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. People might need a map in their car. Really? Yeah, they might even need it in their hand. No. <laughs> Ended up being bought by Google, blah, blah, blah. Made a lot of money. That concept that I've, I've really stayed with me is the sense of make a job. Yeah. And, and don't get a job, make a job. And you can make a job by who is it I want to work for? Who do I want to surround myself with? Who, what are the skill bases I need to be more relevant to my own projection and my own career? I'm going to make a job within the parameters of who's employing me now because I'm going to make myself more employable, mm-hmm. more valuable, more trusted. What are the actual problems under the problems that we're really, really trying to change here? And that mindset is is always welcomed. You are no longer a periphery commodity. All of a sudden, you become a value asset. Great advice. Rob, thank <gasps> you. You're welcome. Really enjoyed this conversation. Thanks so much for your time. No worries, Ben. Thanks for having me back. Thanks for listening to this episode of the NZ Sales and Marketing Insider. If you liked it, you can subscribe via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favourite podcast app for fortnightly episodes. For other great New Zealand podcasts, head over to podcasts.nz. Thanks to our friends at 40 Thieves Nut Butters, listeners to the podcast can get a 20% discount when purchasing online. Just go to 40thieves.co.nz and use the promo code INSIDER20. See you next time.